New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. When you arise in the morning, are you looking forward to the day with exuberance? Are you excited by the possibilities that might greet you? Or are you in need of more passion in your life? Are you like me looking for how we might be more deeply in touch with the wonder and awe we experienced as a child? Or how we may find the extraordinary miracles that are embedded in the ordinary? Today we'll be exploring how we can live a more passionate life with our guest, Greg Lavoie. Greg Lavoie is a former columnist and reporter for USA Today and the Cincinnati Inquirer. He is a sought-after speaker for many prestigious organizations such as the Smithsonian Institution, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the National Conference on Positive Aging. He's both a professor of journalism and visiting faculty at a number of major universities. He's the author of Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life and Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. Join us for the next hour as we explore our rightful inheritance of vitality and reclaim our passion with our guest, Greg Lavoie. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Greg, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. It's a delight to have you. Greg, I would love to start with wonder and awe. And you make a statement. You say, wonder can offer us an adaptive benefit of free cognitive upgrades. So what do you mean? How, how does wonder give us these upgrades? It's kind of a computer's term, huh? Right, that's right. Well, I think I'll give you an example. Please. Um, I used to live in New Mexico, and there are these dry arroyos that, that uh, just wind through the landscape. And I was living there for quite a while until I f- saw my first flash flood. And suddenly I saw those waterways in a whole new way because within— Ten minutes, one of them that was near my house filled up with six feet of of raging class two, class three water. And I remember seeing a a, uh, washing machine bounced along at 20 miles an hour. And suddenly, this was an awesome experience for me. But And the cognitive upgrade was I never looked at those waterways, those dry arroyos the same way after that. And it gave me a sense of... uh, what's really going on in this landscape 
So that, that's what I mean by wonder and awe can offer you uh, an upgrade in your mind that helps you sync the images in your mind with, with what's actually going on in the world. So, yeah, you, you never saw, now Now you probably steer clear of them, too. Well, if you, and I looked way upstream to see if there were any storms uh, way off in the distance. Right. It was just, it just gave me a better sense of my environment. Another, another experience you had, and I especially identified with this because Michael, my former husband and partner, he... Um, and I went to Costa Rica, and we had the same experience of seeing the Arenal volcano and seeing actually fiery rocks. Wow. We saw it at night, so you could see the fiery rocks mm. bouncing down exactly. the, the side of the mountain. Right. It was awesome. Right. right? That's right. I have have had the exact same experience in the exact same place. And I just think, you know, part of what I was after in that whole chapter is just to encourage people not to lose that sense of awe and wonder, that the world is shot through with miracles and amazement and not to get so jaded that you lose that. Exactly. Greg, I have one other story that I want you to tell because it's so miraculous. This is just an incredible story, and it I, I felt like it was awesome, um, where you talked about someone, a girlfriend gave you a ring at mm. some point, mm. and you used to play a little game with it. So can you tell that story, how it left and maybe came back? Sure. Uh, this, I believe, was in a section where I'm talking about risk-taking mm-hmm. and that it's important to just keep the muscles of risk-taking exercised. And one of the ways that I used to do that, and this is the level at which I encourage people to address these issues, is the little, the little tiny ways. So I had a ring that my high school girlfriend gave me, and I was in the habit of um, slipping it off my finger and and holding it over some abyss or another, the side of a railing on a balcony or over a bridge, uh, over a cliff sometimes, and twirling it in my fingers and just taking a chance that it wasn't going to slip out of my, my hands. And it was just a way to just keep myself a little on that edge of unpredictability. And it was just a little practice session for me. And uh, it turns out that one day I was over the Kentuckook River in New Hampshire with my twin brother Ross next to me, and I'm holding it over the covered bridge, and it fell out of my hands, dropped into the river, and, and we both looked down at the spot on the river, and Ross says, well, that's the end of that game. And he had borne witness to that game for 20 years. And uh, a week later, we're downstream swimming in the river, and he comes up to me where I'm sitting on a big granite rock with his... With his um, palms closed over around something. And he comes up to me with this, this look of almost shock in his face. And he opens his palm and he says, does this look familiar? And it was the ring. Now, what are the chances of that? What, you know, I, what a miracle. Absolutely. What a miracle. Absolutely. And I'm sure that lots of people have stories of and little miracles. And it was miracles. way downstream. It was, it was a quarter of a mile downstream. Yeah. I mean, the chances were just astronomical. But it also reminds me that that uh, life is full of mystery and inexplicable things, and just to stay open to the wonder of that. And you talked about small things, and that reminds me of something else that you advocate, and that's the the trim tab factor, how something very small can actually disproportionately 
make huge changes. Say something about that. Right. This comes from a business book called The Trim Tab Factor, and it's based on the idea that big ships have big rudders, but attached to the big rudders are little ones that they call trim tabs, and it's the small rudder that moves the big rudder that moves the ship. And my point being that the the application of small amounts of energy with some consistency over time is what I think makes some of the big changes in our lives happen. So I don't necessarily encourage people, quit your job or leave your marriage or turn your life upside down, but make lots of small changes. And the cumulative effect of that often makes the bigger ones happen. Exactly. Um, You also point out something um, which I loved reading it was about Carl Sagan, and this is going back to wonder and awe. And Carl said he loved to teach kindergartners right. much more than older kids, teenagers, and so forth. Why did he say that? Well, we're looking at the ways in which we lose our sense of vitality and exuberance and wonder and awe. And he he was describing the difference between going into a kindergarten class and a high school class to teach science. And he said the kindergartners— open for business. (laughs) You know, they're endlessly enthusiastic. They're avidly curious. They're natural born scientists. And and they've never heard of a stupid question. And the high schoolers were jaded. And this sense of wonder, which I personally think of as one of the, the active ingredients in a passionate life, relegated to kid stuff, something that they're embarrassed to not know. And, and of course, terrified of asking dumb questions. And I just, I I look at that as an example of how readily we lose our vitalities and our enthusiasms and our authenticities and our sense of awe at the world. Right. Or or that we stop asking questions. Mm. And you point out a wonderful example of that when you don't often watch football and you were with a group of people, (laughs) avid football fans, and you were watching the Super Bowl. Yep. And you would ask a lot of questions. and it, Questions it, that were apparently obvious to everybody else. And I never, and like, are they allowed to grab onto each other's clothing or hair? Are they, why do some fumbles get jumped on and some are left alone? Why do they look down on dancing in the end zone? And just the questions like this. And and um, afterwards, a friend of mine said she felt embarrassed for me asking such dumb questions in front of a bunch of football freaks. And it genuinely didn't enter my mind that I would be being judged for not knowing something about that sport. Right. As if real men are supposed to know about professional sports right. or cars or whatever neither of which I know anything right. about. And I think you made the point that if, uh, being a writer, you wouldn't assume that other people would know what you know about writing. Right. So it, Absolutely. So I just learned early on in life, primarily through my dad, that there was no shame attached to not knowing something. And that uh, not knowing and asking questions is the root of discovery. And discovery is a big part of living passionately, in my opinion. That just reminds me, too, of, of the idea that it's been said that we only use 10% of our brain, and it, it just, it, it's not true. And you point that out about nature. Why would nature uh, develop something that takes so much in metabolic energy? Exactly. Do you want to say something about that? Well, yeah. I, uh, 
why would nature develop a, an organ, the, the brain, that uses is such enormous reserves of, of energy and only use 10% of it? You know, I mean, the metaphor that I use in the book is that it's like develop, ha- having a plane with six engines and only using one or two of them to fly. It just doesn't make sense. And in fact, brain studies have found that when you uh, plug, uh, uh, you know, diodes into different parts of the brain, there's no part that doesn't light up. So it's just working all the time. It's working all the time. Although you also, I love this. I never read this before. You also say the mammalian part of our brain, that that brainstem, that older part, it has a longer job experience. I love that idea, okay, <laughs> that that it's been around longer and no wonder we tap into it more often. Right. I... Uh... What I'm just getting at here is this is in a chapter called uh, The Call of the Wild. And that this is part of the part of living passionately is not losing touch with our instinctual selves, our natural selves, our our the part of us that uh, makes it hard for teachers to take classes out into the outdoors because immediately people are distracted by squirrels chasing each other in the trees and the wind in the willows, you know, to remember that we are naturally wired to be natural, to be wild, to be, um, to, to operate from our mammalian brain, which like you said, it has got a lot more job experience on planet <laughs> earth than the forebrain. Right. Um, right. And it's so easy to get stuck up here. I'm here with Greg Lavoie. And he's the author of Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, greglavoy.com. And he spells his name G-R-E-G-G-L-E-V-O-Y, greglavoy.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Greg Lavoie, and we're talking about vital signs, about our vitality and passion, and he's the author of Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. And Greg, you were just talking about wildness, and I, I want to go a little deeper into that and our, our need for adventure, our, our, that questing part of ourselves, and that's part of, that's part of your book. And I want to mention something because you you have this in your book, but it just like really I've been watching um, a it wasn't Cosmos, but it was one of those series about how the universe began. So I've been watching that uh, 
on uh, DVD. And you, I say, um, no wonder we have a restless spirit um, because, like, the earth is spinning. Now, this is what you say. The earth is spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles per hour. It orbits the sun at 65,000 miles per hour. And the solar system is traveling 540,000 miles per hour around the galaxy. And the galaxy itself is charging through space at 670,000 miles per hour in a universe that's expanding at a now this is this is beyond our comprehensions. One hundred and sixty thousand miles per megaparsec, whatever a megaparsec is, but I'm sure it's just huge. So, so when we're sitting peacefully in our meditation, we're actually ripping through space, and so no wonder we have a restless spirit. Can you say something about our restless spirit? Oh boy, oh boy. Um, it's a blessing and a curse, of course. Uh, in fact, I spent most of my childhood on Ritalin because me and my twin brother were a little too restless for our mom, and she had mother's little helper, except she was giving it to us. It has some drawbacks, but the restlessness, I love this. I interviewed a fellow named Arnold Mindell. You know him. Oh, he's been on many, many Is times. Right? I love Arnie so and Amy. They are fantastic. I couldn't so, agree more. Yeah. And I interviewed him, in fact, for both of my books. And uh, we talked about restlessness. And he said, you know, you really have to look at the word itself, restless. And the question you need to ask of your restlessness is what wants to move and where does it want to go? Which I think is a marvelous question. You know, rather than judging the restlessness is to look at it and say, what is trying to happen? What wants to emerge? He talks about a consultation he did with a woman who came to him claiming she was depressed, but her feet were moving like tuning forks under the, under the desk. And he says, you know, I don't, I don't think you're actually depressed. I think you're sitting on a lot of energy. What would your feet do if they were free to do anything they wanted? She gets up and she literally does a jig. And while she's doing it, she says, I feel like there's a lot of energy I'm not permitted to express mm. in public. So I think go into the restlessness and ask what wants to move? What part of me is is restless? And that could also, Greg, be part of um, if we're feeling bored. And you, you, I know you mm. mentioned something about remind us that if, if, a, if we're driving a car and it goes into a skid— we need to turn into the skid. Right. That's that's the way a good driver should do it. Right. And if we do that, you're saying turn into the boredom. Turn turn what do you mean by turn into the boredom? Don't try to outrun it, explore it. You know, it's like meditators learn if you can't get out of something, get into it. You know? And so what I'm saying to people is look at whatever is blocking the expression of your vitality needs to be looked at. In order to live a passionate life, you have to confront whatever is blocking its expression. If it's boredom, for instance, I say, do boredom. <laughs> you know, everybody wants a fix. They want out of the stuck place and back into the vitality and the spark and the mojo. And that's fine. I'm just saying one way to do that is to explore the blocks, right? Uh, uh, Marion Woodman, you know her, the, the Jungian analyst. Absolutely. 
she once said, suffer creatively, not just neurotically. Oh, Whoa, isn't that great? Marvelous? Isn't that marvelous? And so suffering creatively, part of what that means is, in other words, suffering that's useful, that leads to insights and solutions and change. So yeah, I just want to say about suffering, like we hear that that phrase, you know, that there's pain in life, but suffering is optional. But this is, you're looking at it differently. You're yeah. saying, hey, use it, ride it. Oh, I'm saying it's unavoidable because the word passion itself comes from a word meaning to suffer. It's, it's all bundled in there. I, I don't think suffering is optional. I think suffering is part of life. It's, it's, of course, what we do with the suffering. And everybody wants to block it out. And I understand. Uh, I, I've got those impulses myself. I'm just saying um, the word educate means to draw out. I am saying just be literal about it. Draw it out. The... Um, what is a draw a picture of your obstacles, right? Do a, do a dialogue on the page between passion and security, which are two that are always at each other. Um, talk it out, play it up, suffer creatively, uh, rather than just trying to make an end run or transcend the obstacles, the restlessness, the, the fear, the suffering, the boredom is explore them. Cause frankly, in some ways, those are, those are all parts of passion. Well, that just reminds me, as you say, dance it out or draw it out or something. You're advocating, like we are so indoctrinated with words and language. And uh, I I know that, that you've written something about how there are like something, the words that we put out in magazines and on the internet and everything, it's something like, Seven. It would fill up seventeen uh, libraries, libraries of, Congress. of Congress. I mean, I mean, like which have umpteen million volumes. Right. I mean, that's per year. Right. So, what you're saying? What the point I'm trying to make is? What you're saying is that it's you're saying try something different. Try writing poetry on a napkin was one of your suggestions. Try dancing. Try. So what what are your suggestions to get us out of that or to explore our suffering creatively? Yeah. Oh, well, there's as many ways as there are forms of art, for instance. Um, dream work is another way. Uh, there's just lots of ways of exploring that are not just about trying to think our way through it, right? It's to, it's to get more uh, tactile experiences, drawing or clay you know, uh, to use clay, go out and use your body outside. Uh, just lots of ways of cultivating passion. Uh, I think a lot of people think this is one from the either you got it or you don't department. Right, yes. Um, but I don't believe that it is. I think it's something that can be cultivated. And I think that happens most readily at the level of the moment. Right. And the gesture. Uh, not the five-year plan, not the extreme makeover. So in these moments, look at... Um, Things that you can do that are uh, that you're fascinated by, things um, find things in your life that you can look forward to. Um, an adventurous life. The word adventure comes from a word meaning something about to happen. So a sense of adventure, for instance, is about always having something to look forward to. So have that going on. And that reminds me. Uh, another thing that you write about is that that gene that they have discovered that. Some oh, people have a DRD4, have a, I think. DRD4, that actually there is a, an adventure gene. There is. 
and it tends to be uh, most prominent in people who come from ancestry that migrated the longest distances. So in other words, the people who live in South America, who are descended from people who came over the Bering Straits, the, one of the longest human migrations, they have the gene in abundance compared to people in the parts of Southeast Asia, for instance, that don't don't right. do that kind of migration. Interesting. So Interesting. some people are are born with it. Interesting. And and also talking about finding other ways of expressing besides thinking our way through it, that reminds me of um, a course that you you talk about that some uh, teacher gave a ceramics course. Mm. And she had gave an assignment to two different groups of people, one to make a pot the best they can make it, make a perfect pot. Right. And the other one was just... Don't worry about any perfection. Just make a lot of pots. Right. And when the ultimate, they were shown, what was the result of showing those two groups of people? Oh, that the ones who had gone for quantity over quality uh, produced what was considered to be better art, better pots, more uh, just, you know, they, they, they asked people who were artists, professional artists, to judge them. And the ones who went for quantity did better work. And they didn't know what the criteria was. But it was just trying lots and lots of things, trying it over and over again, not, not going by some idea in your mind of the perfect looking pot. And doesn't that kind of going that for that kind of perfection stop us in some way? It, it's a real stopper. Oh, I think it is. Absolutely. When I sit down to write, I, I have a writing practice in the morning. I sit down to write, and what I'm attempting to do is what's called free writing, stream of consciousness writing. I'm seldom able to overcome, however, the bad habit of editing while I write. So what's happening is the creator's on, uh, the, the critic is on the creator's back during the act of creation. So constantly telling me, go to the thesaurus, get a better word, or um, badgering me about my split infinitives and <laughs> sentence-ending prepositions and, um, and questioning my logic and my structure and, and, frankly, even the truth, when all I want is momentum and, uh, you know, a halfway original idea. So there's an example of the way that my perfectionist brain, I'm always trying to edit it, get it right as I go, has a constipating effect on my creativity and, frankly, my passion for writing. So what I need to do is negotiate. I, I turn to the critic. Occasionally, I manage to do this. Turn to the critic and say, you, out. When the creator's done, then you get to come in and go to town, but not at the same time. Otherwise, I'm driving with one foot on the gas and one on the brake. Right. Right. So that's that's something we can all think about. Just do it. I said that old Nike phrase, just exactly. do it. Exactly, just do it. Go go for it. Go go to forward. Um so we were also talking about wildness and I want to go back to that. And we we in this culture, I guess you would say we suffer from a nature deficit mm. disorder. Mm. So in in we're not we the, the mostly the only water we're in is the water in our shower or our tub you know or or we don't take off our shoes and walk on the grass because there's probably dog dew on most of it you yeah, know right. <laughs> and and we don't touch a tree so what do you have to say about being in nature and why that's might might be important oh boy I remember the uh, 
fellow who coined that term, I think his name is Richard Louvre, he uh, interviewed a, I think it was a fourth grader who said, I like being indoors better because that's where all the electric outlets are. And when I read that line, I realized, wow, we're, we are in trouble, you know, when we're raising an entire generation. And, and frankly, you're in my generation. That's the baby right. boomers are probably the last one that spent so much of our time out in, in the natural world. And we did. And we did. Definitely. And, and uh, I think nature is source, not just resource. Let's talk more about nature is source, not just resource. I'm here with Greg Lavoie, and he's the author of Vital Signs, the Nature and Nurture of Passion. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Greg Lavoy. He is the author of Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. And we're talking about nature right now. Nature, you said nature as source rather than resource. Can you expand on that? Well, yes. What I'm simply getting at is encouraging people to get out of their heads and more into their bodies, get out of the office and more into the outdoors, is have some a better sense of balance and nature, the natural world, is where we spend 95% of our developmental time. It is home. And I remember interviewing Robert Greenway, who used to teach up here at Sonoma State. And he used to take his students out into the woods anywhere from a few days to a few weeks or even months. And he said he noticed that it took roughly four days for them to begin to shed all their enculturation. And his comment was, Culture may be 12, 15,000 years old, but it's four days deep. Mm. And it's natural for people to sit in small groups around fireplaces mm-hmm. and to tell stories and to just be immersed in the natural world. And it's soothing and calming. And what he had to do when he sent them back into their, their day-to-day life, he had to overcome the kind of the, the fires of reentry. Because they all kinds of stuff hit the fan when the kids went back to their their lives and their schools and their classrooms and everything else. And so what he instituted was before, during, and after each one of these jaunts, yoga. Mm-hmm. To sustain that 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 experience of non-duality. Yes. So that the kids didn't uh, flame out on the way back. But I just think it's really important to submit ourselves to that state from time to time. I think that is a huge part of living with passion is to go back to source and reconnect and plug back in and not just be sitting in front of computers and cell phones and iPads and iPhones and all that all the time. I know in your book you mention um, Robert Greenway and and you mentioned before he instituted the yoga and and all of that to help them re-enter. Um, he describes a certain young man who was working in a grocery store after going out on one of these adventures out into nature. And uh, he said uh, that he was summoned by the manager of this supermarket. 
uh, to do an intervention because the student, uh, he found him just on the floor, just babbling <laughs> incoherently and laughing hysterical about the absurd number of brands of toilet paper and, and you know, just a bottomless pit of all the stuff on the shelves yeah. of that it just it just blew his circuits exactly so uh it, so it's good that he added this other piece to because that's really quite a shock right it is and but frankly i think it's a shock to our system to be sitting in chairs and in front of um computerization day and night yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Yeah, a lot of I us know. are. Wow. A lot of us are. You tell a beautiful story of being in nature one time when um, you were just standing there and there was a herd of wild horses. Mm. Can you describe that experience? It's so beautiful. Yeah, and what I was getting at here was to remind people of their encounters with wildlife. In the flesh, and in this particular case, this was actually a more domesticated than that, but it was a herd of horses um, somewhere in North Carolina. I was in a meadow, and they were on the far side of a meadow. There was a gulch between us, and they all, the whole herd came thundering toward me, disappeared into the, the gully between us, and then came back up over the ridge in front of me, and I was caught between feeling thrilled at seeing this, and I could feel the... Uh, the, the stampeding right through my feet on the ground and being torn between that and running exactly. like crazy from, you know, what after all was a thundering herd of large mammals <laughs> heading right for me. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, but I stayed put. And what they did is they came over the ridge, the rise in front of me, and then they slowed down and spread out and surrounded me. And several of them came up and allowed me to run my hands along their flanks and their necks. It was a physical ecstasy. Mm. And I think a lot of people have these experiences with dolphins or birds mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. whatever uh, encounters with wildlife to re remind us how close we actually are to the wild kingdom. I had an experience that was shocking, more or less, for myself uh, some years ago when we lived up on the side of a mountain in um, Hopland, California. And in kind of it was off a ways from from this towns or anything. And I was walking, it had been raining, and I was taking a walk on the property. And I looked down and I saw a paw print, a couple of paw prints, and I thought, oh, who has a dog up here? Hmm. And then I looked again and I instinctively, Greg, I instinctively knew what it was. It's like some animal part of my body just suddenly came alive, just like like warning bells went off. And I realized, I figured out, wait a minute, this paw print is too deep for a dog. This is a heavy animal. And then I realized it's a mountain lion. Mm -hmm. And I could literally feel the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I, I, it was so profound to be in touch with my own animal body mm -hmm. when I when I saw and recognize that print, never having any any kind of uh, experience with tracking animals or anything. There was a knowing right there. Yeah. And the fact that you had the hair go up on the back of your neck, on one hand, some people would think that's that's a fearful situation. I wouldn't want to be in it. But didn't you also feel electrified? 
Absolutely. kind of alive in that moment? Absolutely. Right. I, every, every cell in my body was awake. On alert. Yes. Right. And that's one of the benedictions, I think, of uh, taking ourselves out into the woods, out into the mountains and the meadows, is we, we become more the creatures that we actually are. And that's part of aliveness as far as I'm concerned. I remember, too, there, there was a story you told when um, you had moved from, I think, the um, southwest, New Mexico, to the east coast, and where it's lush and green. So you're coming out of the desert sort yeah. of environment, and now you're in this lush greenness, and, and you stop your car, and you get out, and you're looking at a pasture just looking at a pastor, and oh, yeah, I was surprised by what happened. Describe what happened. Yeah. Um, a car pulls up behind me, and I'm just in a reverie, leaning on this fence, looking at grass and forests and meadows, which I hadn't seen in years because they're not endemic to that southwest. And a car pulls up, and a, a voice behind me says, what you looking at? And I turn around, and I see there's an emblem on the side of the truck. And I imagine the man has a proprietary relationship to this meadow. And I said, I'm just looking at a meadow. I moved here from Tucson, and I, I'm not used to seeing them. I'm just enjoying North Carolina. And he seemed satisfied with the answer, drove off. A minute later, I'm back at my reverie. Another car pulls up. What you looking at? And I turn around, and I'm, I'm like, ready for like, will you leave me alone? And it was a police officer. And apparently the first fellow wasn't completely satisfied with my answer. And uh, I, I repeated myself word for word. And I, I tell this story by way of saying, uh, this is sometimes what we're up against in allowing ourselves to just float and amble. The Sufis call it sacred drift, to just be in a reverie to not be in work mode, just to be in receptive, responsive mode and float. And sometimes the world is rather insistent that we explain ourselves. And, and my point was to, to, to look at some of the forces that will kind of pull us away from our reveries and our wonders and our adventures and our reverences and gratitudes and all that and, and make us snap back to it. And that's why I told that story. Right. Uh, you, you, just looking at nature makes you look like a suspicious character. It, it didn't. In, it certainly didn't in that case. In that case. It's like, why would a man do that? I was uh, just with a friend of mine recently, and um, he was saying he remembered a time when he and I went out to Point Reyes National Seashore. And I'm, I've been like this ever since I was a kid. I literally stop and smell all the flowers, and I look at this, and I look at that, and I marvel at this, and I marvel at that. And at first he thought he felt embarrassed to follow suit. And he just said, it was just you modeling that behavior made it seem more and more normal as the day went on. But initially I thought, I feel embarrassed bending down to smell flowers. What sort of a grown man does that? This is sort of a grand cliche, but mm -hmm. nobody actually stops on the street with other people going by and inhales the smell of a flower without seeming a little foofy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just wanted us to look at some of the forces that are going on, even the voices in our head that tell us, you can't look foolish, you can't ask silly questions, um, you can't not be a knower, and uh, you can't look like you've got a, you, you're a man on a mission. <laughs> you know, and I spent a, a lot of my life being a man on a mission, I realized... <sighs> Yeah, it's one of the stories I tell in the book of leaving my job, I was working as a reporter, going out into the woods deliberately getting lost, walking for miles into the 
into the woods and then closing my eyes and spinning around in circles until I literally toppled over from dizziness. And I realized I had no idea where I was or how to get back to, to my car. And I loved it. I reveled in a couple of hours of just being released from the burden of purpose for a oh, change. Lovely. And uh, that was so um, such an Im- immense experience in my life to let myself wander and be, quote, lost. It's such a rare, rare experience for us modern, postmodern humans. Exactly. There was another one that you describe uh, being in the Saharan desert mm. with uh, on guide with some Berbers and being in an oasis and kind of stepping away from it and realizing there is no getting away. There is no away. It, right. I was out there because I wanted something really out of the box, as far out of the box as anything I had ever done. And me and my brother took a couple of camels and a guide out into the oases a few days into the Sahara Desert. And I'm out there in the middle of the night. I'd gotten up to relieve myself, and I'm standing looking at camels under palm trees and skyscraper-sized sand dunes and uh, a quarter moon. It was something out of Sinbad the Sailor. It was, it, was an, it was so far out there. And I realized I've been trying to get to this place my whole life. Some place that's I'm completely relieved of all my responsibilities, anything that's familiar. I'm I'm just uh, away from it all. But I realized that just down the road was Timbuktu, which is famous for being the capital of the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. But I was just told that it now has a uh, an international airport. So there's really no getting away in this ultimate, ultimate sense. And this is something we need to find here and now in day-to-day-to-day life. You don't necessarily need to travel halfway around the world to get away from it all. Unplugging, literally, sometimes. Closing our eyes, going out into the woods and sitting quietly is a getting away that we need to cultivate. It's the trim tab approach. You know, the small applications of of aliveness that we can get just by walking out the door and sitting in the backyard rather than working uh, 16-hour days to afford a backyard that you never go sit in. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, good, good reminder. (laughs) I'm here with Greg Lavoie. He's the author of Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Greg Lavoie, the author of Callings and also Vital Signs in Nature and Nurture of Passion. And Greg, I'd, I'd like to talk about relationship because I know that you devote some of your book to relationship and what that's about. And you started off with we need, you describe how we need a gap mm. to get to the sizzle. Mm. And what do you mean? Describe what you mean by yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, what that comes from is a, a contraption that my father built in the basement of the house where I grew up. It's an electrical generator called a Tesla coil. And at the top of it were two copper wires between which this bright purple spark would jump back and forth. And I love this image as a metaphor for passion in relationships because I think that whether we're talking about electricity moving between two poles or two people, I think the same principle is working, and that is that a spark requires a gap. That is some space, some healthy distance between the two people. Um, otherwise, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the spark doesn't get a chance to be lit and stay lit. And so that's just one of the aspects of keeping passion in a relationship is to develop some good, healthy space between the parting that makes the heart grow fonder, right? Um, time away from each other that you bring back the discoveries that you've made on your retreats so that you advance the relationship, right? So that's what I mean by the, a spark requires a gap. So relationship requires some separateness. I think that's one of, let's put it this way. Um, I mentioned this earlier. The, uh, one of the primary dynamics in people's relationship to vitality is the struggle between passion and security, okay? Um, and we, we need to, referee that the, the tug of war between the two of those, uh, as we do in relationships as well. And uh, and I just want to say, often it comes to like argument about money, which would, would really highlight this. Right. Or even just making sure that your relationship is safe and secure all the time, not doing anything right. to rock the boat, right. security above all things, which for many right. people is paramount in relationships. Yes. And they're willing to trade off heat for warmth. You know, uh, yeah. or passion for just companionship. Right. But it's not an either-or equation in, in my book. I mean, literally in my book. It's not an either-or equation, even though we've been taught that it is, that you will either have passion in a relationship or serenity, but probably not both. Either uh, freedom or commitment, probably not both. So what we end up with is this idea that, it, well, it's either Wuthering Heights or the Remains of the Day. <laughs> right. You know, and it's not. It's it's a both-and equation. It's not either or. We need both security and passion. All right? We need uh, love and passion. And they tend to work toward pretty different goals in relationships. And it takes a, a willingness to referee them. Love wants assurances, okay? Passion wants abandon. Love wants to be soothed. Passion wants to be stimulated, right? Uh, love wants to go steady. I mean, even the language, go yes. steady. And love wants to be, uh, passion wants to be swept away. So it's hard to stay worked up over the same person you're looking to for safety and security needs. So, uh, so you're saying it's possible. It's possible. And what we need to do is practice the high art of paradox. Paradox, holding the tension between two seemingly opposing forces or ideas or energies and still retaining the ability to function. And knowing what you're really asking for in the moment. Oh, you know, I want a little more passion or no, I need a little more security here. So exactly. knowing, hey, this is the territory we're talking about now. Right. 
it's security. This is the ter- territory we're talking about now, passion. Exactly. So, like, knowing that we're living in these different rooms of our relationship. Sure. And like you said, asking for what you need. Asking for it. I, I want some more security in this. How can we work that out? I would like some more passion. What what can we do together so that we're not forcing one or another of the couple to leave the relationship to get passion, which is often what happens and where infidelities sometimes come into the picture, right? Uh, this is why separate time, when I'm on vacation with anybody, anybody, whether it's a partner, a wife, uh, my twin brother, we always take some separate time on vacation, which apparently scandalizes people. Why would you do that? What does that mean about your relationship that you would want to be separate from them on vacation? It means that you need your space and it's healthy. It's, you know, and we have our days apart and we come back together for dinner and we have tons to share. New new experiences that we each had separately that we come back, and it's like that. Exactly. You know, uh, I'm officiating at a wedding soon, and when meeting with this young couple, I gave them a copy of your book, huh. and I said, now, if you don't read anything else, read this chapter mm. on relationship. Read this one. Wow. Uh, because I really feel like you were nailing it. You were nailing it. Fabulous. It was not— it's not just either or. And, and the, another thing that you say that you describe that I loved, it was uh, a time that you were taking a course in human sexuality, and you, you found out that human sexuality and identity, gender identity, is pretty fluid. So describe what your ahas oh, in my that. Goodness. This was a um, final exam for a course in human sexuality. And the final exam was a sex role change party. And the assignment was come as you're not. Come as you're not. And I came as a, a seductress. Uh, my girlfriend at the time dressed me up as a seductress. And, I, and I, my grade depended on me staying in character, as did everybody's. And um, I was very surprised. And I'm a, essentially in my, still in my teens at this point. I'm very surprised at what came out of me as a result of playing this role. And I realized, wow, I'm, I'm actually very good at this. This is n- not who I am, but why did I embody that role so fully? And uh, some of the ahas were simply that we are seasoned with a lot of spices. And it would be a shame to live your whole life in such a narrow rut, you know, to, to explore. And I'm not necessarily suggesting people step out of their sexuality and try different, you know, but I'm just saying that that taught me that, that there are many, many, many paths, ways to be, and they're perfectly natural to human beings. So that we have a lot of notes that we can play on the piano of our own um emotional Absolutely. body. And, and it's terribly easy to have all these avenues narrowed down to a little slice. Yes. The same people, the same ideas, the same old, same old, when there's a, an enormous world of possibilities out here. One of the things that you did with uh, your in your relationship, there was a time when you, over a long period of time, like I think it was over a year, you were discussing with your partner about whether to move or not to move. It was just like going nowhere. Right. And you did something that was very, very, I think, instructive for us. Yeah. Can you describe how you changed roles in that sure. argument? Yeah, we had we, probably our most consistent fight over a year about whether to move from the city to the country. 
We had both, she was from LA, I'm from New York. Uh, it was about moving to the country. And we got stuck in this pattern. Uh, she had taken the voice of yes, I had taken the voice of no. And we got stuck there for a year. And what I did is I came to her one day out of the blue and said, you know, I'm tired of being the bad guy. Let's switch. You take the voice of no, I'll take the voice of yes. Just something to break the stale mate. Interesting term in that case, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> isn't it stale mate? Yeah. Yes. Um, and, uh, and it broke the tension and we got to play with it. I got to embody the other side of the argument that I'd been avoiding to try to balance her out. So you're advocating now moving. You're saying, I'm saying, okay, well, here's what I'm, might be great about it. Yeah, all right. And she got to finally articulate her fears that she had been holding back to kind of balance me out, not to feed the fires of my negativity at the time. So we got to play. We injected play into the scenario and didn't take it so deadly serious. And, uh, and it was hugely transformative for not just our relationship at the time, but um, uh, our, our ability to move into a decision, which we eventually did move to the country. So you actually did move, we but, did. but not before. So it resolved itself into something that you both were on board oh, for. Oh, absolutely. And life-changing for both of us. Wow, moved, that's great. Moved from San Francisco to Taos, New Mexico. Oh, great. And yeah. then lived there for quite a while. Yeah. So um, that just reminds me about the idea of saying yes to life. So what would right. you say about saying yes oh, to boy. life? I, I have seen it in myself and I've seen it in other people, how easy it is to, to um, get into a situation of no is your default position to life. Just a, a, an unconscious tactic of blocking experience. And, um, or, or, or maybe, there's yes, no, but there's also maybe, which is just a kind of indecision that can rob decades out of your life, frankly. Um, but I remember when I was in San Francisco here taking improv classes and she said, the key word in improv is yes, yes. And yes. And, and it's transformative. It's a transformative mindset. And so a lot of coming back to our sense of aliveness and passion is say yes more often. In fact, read the book. Yes, man. Uh, oh. by Danny Wallace, uh, it's the basis of the book that, uh, Jim Carrey was in. Because it was his experience of what it took to become a person who said yes more often. And that's a big part of it. A lot of people, for instance, tell me they can't pursue any passion that's not going to pay the bills. They, 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 it's got to pay the rent. And part of what I hear myself saying to people nowadays is, why don't you do an experiment for six months or a year? Take money off the table. Just say yes to whatever your passions are and immerse yourself in them and offer them to people in any way you can and see what happens. Just don't make, don't give yourself the excuse that you can't do X, Y, or Z because of money. Cause it's a quick way to say no and shut down. So take it off the table just for a period of time and say yes more. Say yes more. Well, we've got to go out on that wonderful note. I want to thank you, Greg, for yeah. being part of the New Dimensions today. You're welcome. You're so welcome. I've been speaking with Greg Lavoy, and he's the author of Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, greglavoy.com, and he spells it G-R-E-G-G-L-E-V-O-Y. Com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3539.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.